Articles by Desiring God Who wrote Hebrews? Exploring a New Testament Mystery A feature article written and read by David Mathis It is a riddle wrapped in a mystery inside an enigma. Famously, that was Winston Churchill's description of Russia in 1939 when asked about the nation's intentions and interests. I cannot forecast you the action of Russia, he conceded. Then he added his zinger. Over the years, many have sought to apply Churchill's memorable line to other puzzles, such as husbands admitting, whether comedically or with genuine humility, to their inability to grasp the endearing mysteries of their wife. In New Testament studies, the line may apply most aptly to the epistle to the Hebrews, one of the most enigmatic of the field's enduring riddles. Romans and Hebrews, of similar length, may be the two great pillar epistles of Christian theology, and yet far more is known and certain about Romans. With Romans, we get the systematically reasoned heart of Paul. With Hebrews, we get another powerful, learned, complimentary voice. But whose? Turning to Hebrews, one thinks about the strange Melchizedek figure and the complex argument of chapter 7, the arresting warning passages in chapter 6 and 10, and the opening catena of Old Testament quotations in chapter 1 that many readers struggle to understand in context. William Lane begins his impressive two-volume commentary with this tribute. Hebrews is a delight for the person who enjoys puzzles. Its form is unusual, its setting in life is uncertain, and its argument is unfamiliar. It invites engagement in the task of defining the undefined. And the biggest riddle of them all is information that church history and the faithful today do not consider to be lacking for any other New Testament document. Who wrote it? Could this be Paul? Unlike Paul's epistles, and all other New Testament letters except the epistles of John, Hebrews does not begin with the name of its author, nor does it in any place divulge his name or give any telltale clues as to his identity. The closest information we have is the mention of Timothy as an associate at the close. Our brother Timothy has been released. Hebrews 13, 23. Assuming this to be the Timothy that we know from Acts 16 to 20 and the epistles of Paul, especially the two addressed to him, the author of Hebrews seems to be from the Pauline circle. So the question has long been, might it be Paul himself? When we consider the history of the recognition of Hebrews in the Christian canon, we cannot ignore the early assumption that it was Paul. The extant records are not extensive, but the Eastern Church plainly accepted Hebrews as Pauline. However, acceptance was slower in the West, though it solidified by the time of Augustine and Jerome. The epistle's strikingly high Christology proved valuable in combating the Arian heresy, which confessed Christ as creature, not eternally God. The canonicity of Hebrews stood unchallenged by the end of the fourth century. Paul was presumed to be the author. 
For the next millennium or more, that position remained essentially unquestioned as the church read the scriptures in Latin. However, new queries began to arise at the Reformation as scholars went ad fontes, back to the sources, read the Greek for themselves, and became comfortable enough in the New Testament to spot the stark differences in Paul's typical style and that of Hebrews. Some scholars, clinging to Pauline authorship, have attempted various explanations for the manifest differences in style. Perhaps Paul wrote in Hebrew and Luke, say, translated the letter into Greek. Or maybe Paul co-wrote with another member of the apostolic band. Perhaps Paul's amanuensis, his secretary, had a longer than normal leash, giving this epistle a distinctive style compared with his other 13 letters. Such a rationale suffices for the more moderate differences of the pastoral epistles, but not for Hebrews. However, the best argument against Paul as author comes in the letter itself. Even though the author of Hebrews does not leave us his name, he does refer to himself in a revealing statement at the beginning of chapter 2. And in doing so, he speaks in a way that we can acknowledge, on good authority, that the Apostle Paul emphatically would not. Speaking of the Christian gospel and the new covenant in contrast with the old as such a great salvation, the author writes, it was declared at first by the Lord and it was attested to us by those who heard. Hebrews chapter 2 verse 3. Note carefully three parties in view here. First is the Lord that is, Jesus himself. He not only came as the great salvation and to accomplish the great salvation, but he told of it. He himself preached, taught, and declared it. Then Hebrews mentions a second group, those who heard, which is that first generation of apostles and Christians who followed Jesus' life, witnessed his death, saw him resurrected, and believed. They saw and knew and heard Jesus for themselves. Then the author of Hebrews puts himself in a third group. It was attested to us by those who heard. Based on what Paul writes elsewhere and how he reasons and understands his call as an apostle of Christ, Paul would not put himself in this third group, which received the message through another group and did not receive it directly from the mouth of the Lord. For instance, Paul writes in Galatians 1.12 about the gospel he preaches, I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. Critical for Paul, as an apostle untimely born, was that he met the risen Christ face to face on the road to Damascus and received the truth and his commission from Christ himself. Hebrews 2.3, therefore, leads many post-Reformation scholars to say, with Lane, about the author, it is certain that he was not Paul. Who could it be now? J.A.T. Robinson comments in his 1976 book, Redating the New Testament, about the writer to the Hebrews, the mantle of the Apostle Paul has fallen in part upon the writer himself. He can address his readers with a pastoral authority superior to that of their own leaders 
and with a conscience clear of local involvement, and yet with no personal claim to apostolic aegis. There cannot have been too many of such men around. Many have agreed that we're dealing with a very limited pool of candidates, even if we can't claim to know that pool exhaustively. Tertullian suggests Barnabas, who partnered with Paul in gospel triumphs on the first missionary journey. Some have wondered whether the author's closing reference to the epistle as a word of encouragement in Hebrews 13.22 might allude to the name Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. However, Paul and Barnabas didn't remain in the same circle indefinitely. The two had a sharp disagreement about Mark and separated from each other in Acts 15, just before Paul met Timothy in Acts 16.1. Others have suggested Silas, short for Silvanus, who was together with Paul and Timothy for the writing of 1 Corinthians, 1 Thessalonians, and 2 Thessalonians. Memorably, Martin Luther suggested Apollos, who appears to be the kind of person who wrote Hebrews. Acts 18.24 describes Apollos as a Jewish native of Alexandria, an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. However, the train of early church fathers from the city of Alexandria does not mention Apollos as a possibility. Would the Alexandrian church have forgotten that one of its own authored such a masterpiece? In the end, the suggestions of Barnabas, Apollos, and Silas meet the same fate. We do not have writing samples from them to compare. However, we do have an additional candidate to mention for whom we do have extensive writing. And even then, it's not conclusive. Someone like Luke. One of the first names to be suggested in church history was Luke. Origen of Alexandria found the epistle's theology to be complementary to Paul's, but his style plainly foreign to his, and Origen wondered aloud about Luke or Clement of Rome. John Calvin and the German Hebraist Franz Delisch both went on record favoring Luke. B.F. Westcott claims in his Hebrews commentary that no impartial student can fail to be struck by the frequent use of words characteristic of St. Luke. Henry Alford was also struck. He writes, readers of this commentary will frequently be struck by the verbal and idiomatic coincidences with the style of Luke Acts. Many have joined them in observing resemblance of style or stylistic similarities. More recently, Southwestern Seminary professor David Allen published a full monograph in 2010 titled Lucan Authorship of Hebrews. There is indeed a case to be made for Luke. Students who have advanced enough in Koine Greek to read Hebrews and come to know it well and then read through Luke Acts will notice similarities of expression with Alford and Westcott. Clearly, both Luke Acts and Hebrews belong to a finer level of Greek than the rest of the New Testament. If we start with known authors of New Testament books, as Alan suggests, then Luke seems to be the clear choice. And if we could count Luke reliably as the author of Hebrews, we would have him as author of nearly one-third of the whole New Testament, 
and also perhaps as Paul's amanuensis for First and Second Timothy and Titus. However, we are not limited to known authors, and as Alan himself concedes in his commentary, the most we can say is that someone like Luke must have been the author. Lane captures the humbling truth. The limits of historical knowledge preclude positive identification of the writer. Cannon fodder. The question then that has attended the riddle about the epistle's author is canonicity. If we cannot convincingly establish the identity of the author, can we reasonably receive Hebrews as part of the New Testament canon? That is, the rule or measuring stick of our faith, the Holy Scripture? The church as a whole and throughout time has long held to relative certainty about the author of all other New Testament books. Of the 27 books, 21 were written by Paul and members of Jesus' original 12, Matthew, John, and Peter. In addition, we know the identity of four other New Testament writers clearly associated with Christ and his apostles. Mark wrote his gospel in association with Peter. Luke wrote his and Acts as a companion of Paul. James and Jude were half-brothers of Jesus, with James in particular serving prominently in early church leadership. Apostleship, we might say, is at the center of canonicity, but not the entirety of it. For this reason, many have spoken of apostolicity and applied the adjective apostolic broadly. Hebrews then pushes us one degree further. If it was written by Luke, we have no further concern, as his gospel and acts are recognized without question. But since we remain uncertain about Luke, or suspect another author who is not an apostle or close associate, then further rationale is needed. In fact, we may have enough evidence to consider the author of Hebrews an associate of Paul's and a member of the Pauline circle, since Hebrews 13.23 refers to our brother Timothy, who seems to have been well known to both the writer and his readers. But we need not pretend to be more sure than we are. This uncertainty can serve us well. It presses us to answer the question of canonicity by another means not by the identity of the author, but by the glory of God shining through Scripture. Supernatural Encounter John Piper makes the case, which applies so well to Hebrews. Leaning on 1 Corinthians 2.11-13, Piper writes, Apostolicity is the supernatural transmission of naturally incomprehensible reality to spiritually discerning people through writing that is taught by the Spirit. This means that the recognition by the church of the apostolicity of the 27 books of the New Testament was neither a mere historical judgment about who wrote the books, nor a mere preference for some over others. Rather, the historical judgments and the corporate preferences were the outworkings of the supernatural encounter between the unique work of God in the writings and providentially discerning Christians endowed with the Holy Spirit. That supernatural encounter between Christ and his church, confirmed over generations, is key. The upshot 
of this dynamic as it relates to Hebrews is that the epistle, even without identification of its author, manifests the peculiar glory of God in Christ to his people, and as Michael Kruger writes, has been understood to bear the essential apostolic deposit. A.T. Lincoln summarizes, In the providence of God, the church Catholic rightly heard in Hebrews the apostolic gospel that witnessed powerfully to God's decisive action in Christ and to its implications for faith and life. To this, I would add with Piper that in the hearing, the church has seen for centuries and continues to see not only truth, but beauty, namely the self-authenticating glory of Christ. God only knows. Origen's third century statement on Hebrews has endured. Who wrote the epistle? In truth, God knows. We are not sure of his name, but we can surmise some important details about the kind of person who wrote Hebrews, whoever this someone like Luke was. Though not Paul himself, the author was part of the apostolic circle and known to readers as proximate to Paul and Timothy. He likely had a Jewish background with Hellenistic upbringing and training. Scholars uniformly admire his Greek. A master of elegant Greek, says one. The most elegant stylist among the New Testament writers, says another. The finest Greek in the New Testament far superior to the Pauline standard both in vocabulary and sentence building says a third. Andrew Trotter claims the writing of Hebrews is easily the finest in the New Testament, both in its use of grammar and vocabulary and in its style and knowledge of the conventions of Greek rhetoric. In the end, far more important than our having his name is our having the letter that the risen Christ breathed out for his church through this man. Look to the reward. From beginning to end, Hebrews sounds the consistent refrain, as many have captured it, Jesus is better. Not only is God, but now as man, he is superior to the angels, worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. Better than Joshua, better than David and Aaron and Melchizedek, he provides a better hope through mediating a better covenant. He has prepared for us a better country and will raise us after death to a better life. Foreign as some parts of the letter may feel, we are called again and again without riddle to look forward in the pursuit of real and lasting joy. Whatever the standard of comparison, Jesus is better. He himself is our better and abiding possession and our great reward. Hebrews summons us to seek such holy satisfaction, to know our God as one who rewards those who seek him, to release our grasp on the treasures of this age by looking to the reward, to consider Jesus and run with endurance, looking to Jesus who for the joy set before him endured the cross. Riddle, mystery, and enigma, though Hebrews may be, its vision and value have never been in serious doubt. For more resources, visit desiringgod.org.